You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello and welcome to episode 054 of The Wheelhouse. As you can tell, I am not Aaron Goldsmith. This is Colin O'Keefe filling in for Aaron as he flies to uh, beautiful Wisconsin as the uh, Mariners get ready to take on the Brewers. In the spirit of that, Jerry, I know you are a man of exceptional culinary tastes. And with that, head into Wisconsin. How do you feel about deep fried cheese curds? <laughs> it doesn't do a ton for me. Uh, it would it would be about number 054 on my list of things to do. But I, I do like, I will say this, I like the cheese curds um, that if, if I'm just nibbling on a cheese plate, but the deep fried may be a little too over the top. It's over the top, but of course, it's like calamari out in Wisconsin where they got it everywhere. Um, as always, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This is just an audio-only episode this week. We'll be back on Root Sports again soon. And with that, you know, we have some good baseball to talk about. Mariners had a winning road trip. They followed that up with a winning homestand. And it's good to dig into a few of the reasons why, one of which being J.P. Crawford. Uh, J.P. Crawford has put up a 128 WRC+. Plus. He's posted a full win, according to Fangraphs, in just 27 games. And one quote that I want to kind of tee you up on that I thought was great from Scott was, there's going to be some failures and rough games along the way, but what we're starting to see is this is a guy that is really going to be a big part of our future. The fact that he's in the middle of the field at shortstop is huge. It's really, really big. And he's, I mean, this isn't just a complimentary piece. J.P. Crawford is kind of a foundational piece for us, isn't he? You know, it, it's what we talked about a lot from the day we acquired J.P. And, and when we went out and targeted him to, really, we talked about it in the last episode of The Wheelhouse, was JP was a critical element of our offseason planning because the middle of the field is generally where teams look to start uh, to build. It, it, it's a foundational spot on a club, and we felt that JP represented a foundational player. And, you know, he came into spring training. He has been adaptable. He's coachable. Uh, he works very hard. And I think his whether it's the time he spent with Perry Hill this, the time he spent with Tim Laker and Dustin Lynn and Jared DeHart, our hitting guys, and and what he's done, taking all of what he's learned since he's been a Mariner to the field, and then just relaxing and letting his natural talents take over. There's, we felt like he was a prime candidate for just change of scenery benefit, and that's generally been the case. This is one of the top 20 prospects in baseball for three years running who kind of fell from his perch last year when he didn't immediately take in the big leagues with the Phillies, and we felt like we were buying low, and right now we feel like the returns on that are pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that is from the West Coast originally, has that vibe kind of to him and his personality. I remember talking to him, I think it was around the pre-spring training media luncheon and asking him, you know, you feel better getting out of the pressure cooker that is the Philadelphia and back on the West Coast, and he couldn't have been more relieved uh, and to that point, I had this question come up on Twitter yesterday. Uh, JP plays solid defense. He has the ability to hit for a bit of power. He gets on base. He's a great defender. Somebody asked, is JP Crawford a five-tool player? And he's not, maybe not in the traditional sense, but maybe in a different way where able, he's able to do everything well, but isn't your traditional, quote, five-tool player? 
Well, I think when, when we talk about five-tool players, the, 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 maybe the misnomer is that we're really talking about assessing five tools as average or better. Because if that's how you define a five-tool player, then JP is that guy. We, we talk about Mitch Hanniger in a similar light. It, it, he checks all the toolboxes. And you know if that means you are a five-tool player, then I guess you are. And in JP's case, and I, and I did an interview on this yesterday, in, in the scouting vernacular where we where we grade players out two through eight, you know, two being a, a modest skill and eight being an exceptional skill. Five is generally regarded as major league average. And if you look at JP, his you fill out the boxes from the time he's in high school through the minors to here, and it's a bunch of fives and sixes. And and when you fill out the, the boxes with five and sixes and then you add together an aggregate, that makes you an above average player in this league. And it's uh and we think that's how JP does it. He just he he kills you with consistent quality tools rather than the one marquee tool that drives him. You know, it might not be the Carlos Correa power, or it might not be the the Francisco Lindor flash. He just does everything really well. And you know, it's that's part of the reason we liked him. I, again, it's very reflective of some of the players that we do have in the system that we feel like are five-tool players. And Mitch was the first that we talked about in this regard, and JP's maybe the next installment in that that, that book. Uh, Ryan Huter and I were in the press box talking about how dynamic Malik's and JP were at the top of the lineup. And he said, you know, something that you mentioned earlier, which is that you want your stars to be up the middle. And that's something I'd heard before but hadn't thought about in a little bit because with the Mariners, it seemed like for a little bit we got a bit away from that. You know, of course, Robbie was up the middle. You know, how vital is that? I mean, we've talked about Omar as a potential all-star, JP at short, you have Malix coming on. How nice is it to have that core going up the middle? Uh, it's a, It's been a huge benefit for us. And, you know, we've been fortunate here over the last four years, especially with the middle infield, to, to have star quality players playing there, whether it was Robbie or Gene Segura. Now the way JP has played over these last four to six weeks, you know, the way Omar has played all year long. And, you know, the way, frankly, the way Malik's has played for the last 30 days. And it's that's really exciting for us. And at, at the top of the lineup, we've talked so much, I mean, ad nauseum since I, I arrived here, about wanting to find guys that could get on base, that could create havoc near the top of the lineup. And, and I feel like that's what Malik's is doing. He's showing us his skill set that wasn't on, on, I guess, evident in April and, and early in May. Since he's come back from Tacoma, he's been outstanding. He's setting the table. He's doing athletic things. He's a dynamic base runner, base dealer, and and brings energy to the top. And right now, if you add to that the athleticism, the base running quality, the 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 jitterbug style that we're able to play with with JP grow, going as good as he's going right now, it's it's been phenomenal and. Um, you know, Omar, uh, Domingo Santana, ultimately here in a couple of weeks, Mitch Hanniger and then Bogey stand to benefit from that group setting the table at the top. And that should be awful fun to watch. And speaking of, you know, cutting the bases, which one, JP scoring from first on an extra base hit is one of the most beautiful things I've seen in baseball this year. But similar to that, it's not just the jitterbug guys at the top that can cut the bases. You have Domingo, I believe, scored from first on an extra base hit. And speaking of him, he can score from first on a double, and he also leads the American League in RBI. So that's a pretty unique combination. What have you seen from Domingo to kind of get back in his comfort zone 
uh, over the past, let's call it, three, four weeks? Well, any major league hitter, and I shouldn't say any, 95% of major league hitters tend to be streaky. You know, and when you're in the good streaks, it, it seems like they can't make an out. And when you're in the bad streaks, you wonder when he might next get a hit. And, you know, oh, and he's been in that that hot zone of late, the same as he was, frankly, in April into early May. And, you know, Domingo, like most hitters, when he gets hot, it, it's it's notable. The difference is that when he gets hot, you start it gets loud. It's it's extra base hits, it's balls leaving the ballpark. And we did talk about the fact that with JP, with Malik setting the table, it is putting him in an advantageous position. There's a reason why he's leading the league and runs driven in, is because he's got a lot of opportunity. And you know, all that being said, I do think that the shift from left field to right field has put him in a much more comfortable position. There's the bar was really low with, with how the early season went with with Domingo in left field. He looks like he's in his comfort zone now in right field, and up to and including this series that we just finished with the Orioles. He made three or four catches that we just haven't seen Domingo make, and he's out there working his tail off every day pregame with Chris Prieto. He's working on on tracking the ball off the barrel, and it just looks so much more natural for him playing right field that that kind of relaxed state or ease of, you know, nobody plays a game any easier than Domingo <laughs> does. <laughs> you know, he's high on life. He's just out there, happy guy. But it, he looks considerably less tense on the defensive side in right field than in left. And and as a as a result, we as a team have benefited. Our, our, our team defense has taken – taken a big step forward over the last month or so and again the bar was really low but we have gotten a lot better yeah I mean as you mentioned he's such a relaxed guy he's so soft-spoken even when he moves about the clubhouse it's in a relaxed chill manner so that's why it was so tough to see him you know struggle and not just on the exceptional plays but on some routine plays and yeah as you mentioned we've seen him over the past yeah just this homestand where he's making not just the routine plays, but he's ranging deep into the gap. He's ranging towards the foul lines, making great plays. You know, how how does the team kind of work with him going forward, making sure that he has a spot where he's comfortable? You know, is it something where the, the team adjusts? You know, what? how tough is it to both make the switch? And then, you know, how do you work off this going forward? Because, of course, you do have Mitch Hanniger on this roster as well. Uh, we do. And and one of the things that was happening as Mitch, I mean, the day that Mitch got injured, he was shifting to center field. Malik's played left and Domingo played right to try to create more comfort for everybody involved. I, I will say that Malik's defense in center field has also, along with his bat warming up, has really taken a step forward. Uh, Domingo looks much more comfortable in right field. I don't know where we're going to go from from here. Uh, you know, we'll figure that out in the next weeks ahead as Mitch comes back. But I do know that all three of those players are invested in doing the thing that makes the most sense for the club uh, because they've all played all of the positions. And, you know, the one thing we have seen is that, you know, Malix is capable of playing the three. Mitch is capable of playing the three. Maybe Domingo is better off playing one instead of the other two. So, you know, we'll we'll sort through as as we get closer to Mitch's return and, and see where we go. But there's the one thing I know is we want all three of those bats when they're going good in the lineup. And, of course, they're all athletes. So that's one of the things. You're not trying to hide somebody in a corner or anything like that. These are all guys who can run, all guys who can catch the ball. Uh, speaking of another strong performer, a nice pickup, you know, not necessarily the high-profile or at least semi-high-profile Ben Gamble for Domingo Santana trade, but Austin Adams was 
designated for assignment by the Washington Nationals to be blunt, a team that probably could use a little bullpen help. You know, we've brought him in, and since, I think if I have the numbers right, he's running a 14.73 K per nine, 2.64 fielding independent pitching, 2.95 ERA. He's just getting the job done, to put it plainly. What's the adjustment that he made coming to the Mariners, and, and who helps make those adjustments? You know, in Austin's case, I think he was already making those adjustments while pitching in AAA with the Nationals. And you know, Scott and I were familiar with Austin from the time in Anaheim. He was a farmhand with the Angels briefly before uh, before I left the, the club. And he's always had a great arm. He's always had the ability to spin a slider. He's not always had the ability to fill up the strike zone. And, you know, what we're seeing now with Austin is nothing in the neighborhood of some kind of drastic physical, uh, I guess, adjustment. It is simply getting comfortable pitching at the major league level, knowing that somebody believes in you and giving you the shot. And I could say the same about some others. That, that, that And maybe the most notable in that category is Tom Murphy. Tom's done some things that are a little different than what he's done in years past, but not markedly. And But somebody told him, we believe you're a big league player. Go be a big league player. And, and they're taking advantage of the opportunity. And I think that's what Austin's doing. And you know, we were fortunate that Washington kind of just ran out of time with him. And, and he was on his last option, which he's, he's working on this year. And they, they decided they would cash out and, and go in a different direction. And we were the benefactor. Uh, heavens knows, we have tried you know, through the course of this year, we are, I can't even count the number of, of big arm relievers that have not historically been great strike throwers that we've run through our bullpen in the effort to find Austin Adams. And, you know, we, we found one. Hopefully we found multiple as we, as we sort through this season with, with, a guys, with a bunch of guys that have really great arms. But Austin has the best combination of legitimate velocity, no fear in his approach, and a slider that frankly ranks among the better sliders in the league. And right now he's striking on all of the the good things. It won't always be going so well for him. You know, he'll run into a rough patch, but we believe in his ability. We believe in his preparedness to pitch in the big leagues, and we're excited about what kind of progress he's made. And I wish we could take more credit for being the ones that, that turned the dial on him, but that would be disingenuous. Most of what he's doing, he was already starting to do before he got here, and we just gave him a platform. And we've given a lot of guys chances that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. I mean, even J.P. Crawford is a guy that, you know, maybe the Phillies weren't ready to roll him out there as their opening day shortstop in 2019. And we got him to a point where it's, you know, you're going to start most of the games here for us in 2019. You've talked a little bit about the skill change report. Is there something else where you have like a list of players who are, due to circumstances and skill set, kind of that intersection where, you know, this guy may become available and he's quite good? Is it something where they're targeting in advance that you know – he might become available. We, there is. And actually, we just finished our like, a, a pro scouting meeting. And, and we do pro scouting a little bit differently than we've done it in years past. And we have three player managers. Uh, and we split effectively split the league in thirds. So we have one player manager who is responsible for the franchises in the East divisions, so American and National League East. One who's responsible for the centrals and one's who, one who's responsible for the wests, and all of the affiliated teams with them. Uh, they also serve as the educators f- to understand how our role system applies to amateur and international scouting. So they, they have a, a pretty significant role in our system. We have Brendan Damaraki, 
Jason Karaginas and Emmanuel Sefuentes that, that do these jobs. And, and they do a nice job of collecting a ton of information, communicating with scouts in the field. And we just went through a week-long deep dive on a series of organizations who we feel like we match up with well in trades. And what we're doing is we're looking for players who might not be the most mainstream name. We're looking for players who perhaps might be on the second or third tier of their prospect list, who, but we think have the ability with an adjustment to move considerably higher, or who might be Rule 5 or roster protected, you know, eligible to be protected this offseason. And we want to know, for instance, if a team is at 40, if they don't have a lot coming off their roster and they have six or seven ads, how do we benefit from being there in this 12 or 13 player flux that they have to sort through? We can perhaps help them sort through it. And that's that type of mentality. And it goes, sometimes we get ribbed for it, but that's how you get Ben Gamble for two low-level prospects that may or may not ever play in the big leagues. That's how you get James Pazos and two years of productivity that these guys provided us. Because you can look back, we got almost four wins above replacement for those two players over the course of, of two years. And they were effectively blocked from the Yankees roster or going to be victims of a stack system. And, and we were able to sweep in and acquire them for what we thought was a very reasonable cost. And for league minimum salary, they provided us with some real return. So we're constantly looking at those type of players that might fit on back of rosters or might just be the victim of somebody else's surplus. And we like to be on the phone with those teams constantly to make sure that when it's time to move that player, we are the place they want to send them. And everybody knows that uh, buy low, sell high. It's a very basic concept. It's real estate. It's anything else. But then at the time when you're buying low, people are like, oh, why are you getting this guy? Why are we getting just J.B. Crawford? Where is the three more top 100 guys? You know, when we're moving, uh, it, it, buying low at the time, you know, sometimes it's it's universally praised in the instance of, say, Domingo Santana, a guy that got pushed off of a roster because he didn't have any options. But in other instances with J.P. Crawford, again, an almost foundational piece, you get a little bit of pushback on it, but sometimes time is the the solution for that. Uh, speaking of Gamble and Domingo and the organization that, that they're tied to, the Mariners are, of course, headed off now to Milwaukee and Houston, two organizations that have built themselves into World Series contenders in pretty different ways and uh, much different timetables. Uh, in today's game are the Brewers and what David Stearns and his crew have done, kind of the the model for taking a step back and, and building an organization in a relatively short time period into a consistent winner. I think they've done a remarkable job. You know, at first, I think David Stearns is among the smartest general managers in the league. He's a very creative guy. He's very smart. I think they run a great shop in Milwaukee. Um, similar to the way I feel about Jeff Lunau. You know, Jeff Lunau has done brilliant things over the years and, and not only is responsible for what the Houston Astros are doing, but by and large was a heavy contributor to a decade of success in St. Louis before he left to go to, to the Astros. But there are many different ways to skin a cat. And I think both clubs reflect the obvious, which is you have to you, you have to look at the inventory you're dealing with the day you determine how you're going to build this roster. 
and where the Astros were versus where the Brewers were were two very different things. The Brewers did have some controllable mid-level talent when David arrived in Milwaukee back in 16, and he didn't need to tear it down all the way. He just took a step back, and and they as an organization were able to use uh, buy-low deals, creative six-year free agent type deals, or picking up guys that may not have been three or four years away from from reaching their major league crest, but just a year or two away, and give them opportunity. I would say in looking at the two, we were we were much more similar to Milwaukee. In a in what was here the day we walked in the door in 2015, and and b in the understanding that we didn't have to necessarily take the step back to the degree that the Astros did. Because, I mean, there were times in there where I'm sure both Jeff and the people around the Astros were were wondering, where is the light at the end of this tunnel? Because when you're losing 100-plus games year over year, and and it seems easy when you plan it out on paper, okay, here's what we'll do. We're going to lose this many games over this period of time. We're going to gather outstanding talent. You still have to get through the losses. And it's really hard. Now, we're, we're in the midst of it now. We're not having a good season. We knew that it was going to be a struggle from time to time. And, and frankly, the month of May was far more difficult than anything we were ever planning on. It was just, it, it worked out poorly. You know, the, a stream of events with lesser talent struggling at a, in unison, playing the best part of our schedule, the results weren't great. But, you know, we, we just had to close our eyes and remember that that June happens and August happens and then 2020 happens and J.P. Crawford happens and Omar Narvaez happens and Domingo Santana happens. And as or more importantly, what's happening on our minor league system happens. And, and we, we continue to develop, to develop prospects and gather talent. And that's what both of those teams did. Houston did it and Milwaukee did it. They did it on different timelines and with slightly different plan. And the, the guys that Milwaukee really hit on through their build, their, their, what I'd say is a turnaround rather than a build, mm-hmm. uh, the guys that they were hitting on were by and large players who were already somewhat experienced in the big leagues, who may have been boxed out with the team they were with. Guys like Travis Shaw, that, you know, stand out as a as a name. Zach Davies really hit for the Brewers, and you know, these were guys that had already ascended to the top level of the minor leagues. Josh Hader is another. Domingo Santana, uh, Domingo Santana uh, same way from you know via Houston, oddly enough, but. All of those players that that wind up cresting at the big league level, and you just give them an opportunity, that should sound familiar. You know that that is Mitch Haniger, it's Malik Smith, it's it's so many. It's Ben Gamble, it's James Pazos, it's Marco Gonzalez, it's it's a number of guys that we've had Daniel Vogelbach around our team who we were acquiring either as AAA or young major league players who are right on the verge. And you know, oddly, or I guess. It didn't work out quite as well for us over the last three years as it did for the Brewers. But I think in theory, we were building in a similar way. And and what we're doing now is maybe something of a morphed uh, routine between what Houston did and what the Brewers did. And, and we're hoping that the benefit is that it, it turns around quickly. Mm-hmm. And one of the notable things with those two teams and almost any playoff team is that they're built in a number of different ways. Not just that the teams themselves are are built in different ways, but that every team is built with a blend of different paths. Um, you know, of course, the the uh, 
Brewers hit a home run with a trade with an NL East team, as I'm sure we would love to do. Hopefully our results bear similar fruit. But you have them adding free agents with Locaine. Similarly with uh, the Astros, they add Verlander via trade. And one of the things that I've heard come up before is, you know, of course we've gotten in position where we have some flexibility going forward in the coming years. And some people have started to wonder to a certain degree, okay, sure, you have money, but how impactful is that given a number of players signing before they reach free agency? But as we've seen, Verlander being a key example, that that flexibility is important for more than just free agency, and it allows you to build, again, in a number of different ways. It really does. And it, you you can't spend what you don't have. And you know, if you're having the season we're having, or if you if you are trying to rebuild with a with a site or a goal in mind, the 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 smartest thing you can do while you're gathering talent is to also preserve future flexibility or increase your your future flexibility, and that's generally what we're doing. You know, we're paying it forward and and taking a look at at our 2021 2022 club and then that landscape. I can't predict who among that year's pending free agents are actually going to get to free agency. But I can say that whether it's some of the deals that we've done, and it could have been Gene Segura, it could have been Mike Leake, it could, the, the players that you acquire who do come with contract, we are now equipped to some time when this team is, is prepared and our young group is, is here. And I'll, I'll use the, the 90s Braves as an example we are prepared both in terms of quality of, of prospect, quality of major league player that we project to have on the field at that time, and potentially the, the, the flexibility and, and size of our payroll. We have the ability to go get our Charlie Lee Brandt, to go get our Terry Pendleton, to go get our Fred McGriff or Greg Maddox. You know, be, and, and we some of them can be in free agency. Some of them can be via trade. You know, it's, and we don't have to spend it tomorrow because we saved it today we can spend it a month from now and and i mean that in the in the most broad sense the 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 idea is to build a pool of flexibility of talent and allow it to crest at the right time and show patience not to to placate the the anxieties of we're believe me when i tell you we're not trading players to save money for the sake of trade saving money our, our owners in our market, we have carried north of $150 million payroll for now four years running. We've been among the top 10 or 12 teams in Major League Baseball and payroll for the last four or five years running. And we can be in that position, but there's no sense in being in that position unless you're built to win. And, you know, we took a step back this year in the effort to build ourselves to win. And I'm fully confident that once our roster is, is healthy and in a position to do those things, that will be right back to those levels. And I mean, as you're well aware, there's or the way arbitration salaries are heading, there will always be stars who are making 18 to 25 million dollars still pre-free agency, and teams who are going, uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to win this year. So I mean, guys get traded in those situations all of the time. I'll, I'll give you an example, Colin. That's very recent to to our Mariners' history. Is it last year when Robinson Cano was suspended in May? Now, we received, effectively, we understood that there was going to be about a 10 or $12 million uh, return for us. We were recovering a good deal of Robbie's salary because he was going to miss 80 days. You know, because it was real to us and our team was built to contend last year, we immediately turned around, I'm roughly in a matter of days, 
turned around and invested it in a deal with the Tampa Rays to acquire Denard Spann and Alex Colomay. And, you know, that deal as as a transactional bubble, you know, each each transaction sometimes, you know, like we talked about with the Segura deal, it, it, oftentimes it starts to trail into or, or develop into another. Effectively, the benefit that we received from last year's, I, I guess, bad news on on Cano going down with a with a suspension for PEDs is that we recovered some salary. We invested in Span and Colome, who collectively brought about a win and a half to our efforts last year. One stabilized the eighth inning, and the other one might have been our best offensive player, <laughs> not named Mitch Hanniger, for the second half of the season. And we then flipped Alex Colome and the rest of his future salary to the White Sox for a minimum salaried everyday catcher who now has a chance to make an all-star team and maintains four years of control. So if you look back on it, the the negative of Robbie being suspended and our ability to size up the market and see where we stood, we scored two-thirds of a season of Denard Spann, two-thirds of a season of Alex Colome, and four years of Omar Narvaez by acting quickly. Mm-hmm. And the primary prospect that we trade in the deal, we, we got back on waivers not <laughs> not eight months later. So it, it's a it's a funny game, and you just have to be prepared. But unless you have the flexibility on hand to do it, there's none of that happens unless Cano gets suspended. And that's the benefit of being in a situation we are now where we can maybe plan on having that type of flexibility or war chest for when the, the time is more appropriate than it might be today. Yeah, that's one I honestly forgot about that link because you basically effectively bought Omar Narvaez, just took a little bit longer time for Alex Colomay to turn into Narvaez. And Speaking of Denard Spann, can a contender please pick up Denard Spann and put him out there in left field? Man, he was a he was a fun guy to watch and a great, great dude in the clubhouse. Um, speaking of pools of talent, as we get into the middle of the season, a number of publications are, of course, updating their top 10 prospects list. And a reminder on the prospect side of things, be sure to swing by our official Mariners blog from the corner of Edgar and Dave at Mariners.com slash blog. Uh, we've got a weekly report up there every Friday afternoon with some scouting video, uh, statistical breakdowns, just to round up some of the top performers every week. Uh, and getting to some people who have been in that list a lot, the Mariners and MLB Pipeline kind of, I don't know about official, but it's it's the league's kind of top 100 prospects. The Mariners have six top 100 prospects. You have three polished arms in the upper minors or close to it in Logan Gilbert, Justin Dunn, and Justice Sheffield. Two high-ceiling teenagers in Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez. And then you have Evan White, one of your first-round picks, one of the best defenders in all of minor league baseball. Is it kind of wild to think that not too long ago we kind of just had Kyle Lewis, another guy who's around the cusp of the top 100, he was kind of just the one solo guy floating at the back end of the top 100. And now a short time later, we've got six. Well, in in my time here, and this dates back to 2015, I think in 2015 we had one uh, at, at that time. We had Alex Jackson. And in the years since, we've never had more than two. Uh, so where we are today is kind of phenomenal and whether it's whether it's MLB's pipeline it's baseball America where I think we have five uh, whether it's the the board you know the fan graphs board the big board I think we have nine of the top 130 
50, which is uh, pretty notable. <laughs> and I, I, or whenever they stop ranking them, I think it's right around 150, 160. And, you know, it, it, that's exciting. It's exciting for our future. It's exciting for the people in player development. You know, it's exciting that none of these are named Noel V. Marte or our recent draft class because we think there are, there are m- at least minimally Noel V. Marte and George Kirby start to climb on lists like that, you know, within the next six to 12 months. That's exciting. You know, it's exciting. We are now roughly through all-star season. You know, we don't yet know who's going to play in the Futures game for the Mariners, you know, or how many there will be. We also don't know who's going to play in the AAA all-star game. But the 2A levels and AA all-star games have, have or, or rosters have been set. The A-level all-star games have, have actually occurred already, and, and they're in the books. And we had 21 all-stars between West Virginia, uh, Modesto, and Arkansas. And what, what I think makes that significant is that I believe only the Padres and Twins had more with 22. So uh, we were third uh, among all player development systems and placing players on all-star teams. And what's exciting about that is we had 21 all-stars, none of whom are named Julio Rodriguez, Logan Gilbert, or Jared Kelenic because they were the, the unfortunate, uh, you know, Jared and Logan were moving at the time. So they split their time between levels and, and as a result did not make all-star teams and Julio was injured. So uh, we're really excited about the positive things that are happening in our farm system. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll throw out kudos to our player development department, to Andy, to Carson uh, Vitale and the people in, in our player development group. MinorLeagueBaseball.com recently put out their halfway point Milbys, you know, the, the contenders for the offensive player of the year. And among their five contenders was Jared Kelenic. Uh, they put it out for their their relief pitcher of the year, five contenders, one of whom was Sam Delaplane. Uh, they put it out for the the farm system of the year, one of which was the Seattle Mariners among their their five their five candidates at the midway point, which is a ground we haven't been on. I beyond it's a it's it's beyond our belief that we have been able to, you know, in the last year year and a half. I don't want to say stumble upon meticulously gather the type of talent and develop the the type of drafts that we have over these last couple of years and and now we're starting to see the fruits of it in player development and we really are confident that eventually we'll see that here i don't think it's going to be in july of 2019 but we've talked ad nauseum about the fact that it's not too far off and and for july of 2019 there are a couple of guys in the system that you might see a little sooner than later uh, we'll get to one of those guys, I think, here in a few. But because I got the chance to host this episode, I'm going to seize the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite prospects, one of this fan base's favorite prospects, now that he's finally back on the field, and that being uh, West Virginia outfielder Julio Rodriguez, just 18 years old, playing in the Sally League. We mentioned with with Jared Kelnick that that's not an easy league to play in for a teenager, and in a small sample size, you know, acknowledging that he's running a line that is 338, 440, 493 for a 172 WRC plus. You know, if you lower the threshold all the way to, you know, whatever PAs he has, he's having one of the best teenage seasons that league's seen in a long time. What do you make of Julio Rodriguez for people who don't know, who aren't as just as much of a fanatic about him as so many people are? What can you tell us about Julio Rodriguez? 
Well, first of all, the the kid, Julio, the human being, he's awesome. is awesome. He is a terrific young man. There's he he learned how to speak English in about the time it takes me to blink, uh, uh, which tells you a little something about his commitment and his intelligence. There's he, no one that I've come across, and and there there are people who are focused. Uh, when I talk about focus, intensity, work habits, you know, the first thing I think of is Jared Kelenic. Th- those are all traits that he has. When I think of intelligence, preparedness, and 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 just general understanding for who they are, I can think of ten prospects we have, but probably none more so than Logan Gilbert. When I think of how much they love the game, the first guy I think about is Julio Rodriguez. Uh, Julio, it, it, Julio spent his all-star break in West Virginia, where they hosted this year's Sally League all-star game. He spent his all-star break going as, as, as a fan to watch the home run derby and cheering on Jake Antia, who was hitting in the home run derby, and just generally enjoying it. There's, he, if you'll recall, in spring training, he at roughly every one of our home games that he wasn't suited up to play, Julio was there watching, just standing with a backpack on in the crowd, watching with the people who paid for a ticket because he could and he loved the game and he and he took advantage of it. Uh, on the days when when a teammate, you know, we, we'd call over six, seven, ten guys per day to be backups at the major league level for spring training games, and and on the day that the the when the rosters would go up in the morning for who was going to report to the big league side that day. Most of the guys understand. We call them just in case guys. They'll be there just in case the game goes long, just in case we need the the, the extra AB, just in case one of the pitchers can't get out of an inning in the, the thin desert air. Uh, Julio would see the names on the board and then run around the room high-fiving everybody who got to go to the big leagues that day. He just loves it. And couple with that the fact that he has insane raw talent. His his swing plane, his natural bat-to-ball skills, his hand-eye. He's got raw power that we think has a chance to crest at the very top of the scales. And it shows up now when he's 18. Uh, his, his offensive profile is middle of the order, and he has a chance to be a star in this league if he continues to develop at the pace he's developing. And, you know, I think the combination of how much he cares, how much he loves it, how much he puts into it, uh, and and the natural skill that he has is is only going to lead to greater things. Uh, he's, he's so fun to have in the system. And just like the, the fan base, just like you, for a lot of the people in our system, he is a, a, a favorite because of the way he treats other people and the way he carries himself. I had the opportunity with Andy Minarchek, uh, our, one of our digital video editors and shooters here, to travel down there last fall for the high performance camp and got a chance to do a profile on Julio. And just, you know, a couple days just blows me away. This is a guy that is singularly focused on being a star at the major league level, but does it with a level of humility that is unbelievable. He wants to be a leader, he wants to be a star, but he also is so genuine with how he does it. It's it's unbelievable. And he's a guy that I can't wait for more and more people to get to one, see on the field and two, just get to know as a person because he's really something else. Um, and getting to our last performer, Jake Fraley really uh, earned his promotion to Tacoma, didn't he? And immediately underscored that as soon as he got there. Yes. Yeah, so part of, you know, we had been talking for weeks really about moving Jake to Tacoma um, when we acquired Jake, you know, we've talked about it a lot. It was, uh, he was a skill change flag, uh, from Ben Aronow and our analytics department who had cited what Jake had been doing with his swing change or since his swing change. 
And, and frankly, if you look at Jake's last 600 professional plate appearances, it's absurd what he's done. If you, if you combine what he's done, you know, in, in his brief couple games in Tacoma with what he's done this year in Arkansas, with what he did last year in the Florida State League, with what he did in Perth in Australia leading into that, it's it's pretty phenomenal. When he's healthy, Jake has been dynamic impact over the course of this last you know, it's a year and a half, two years. And we're excited to have him in our system. He was tearing it up to the tune of, I had to be a runaway favorite in the moment for the Texas League Player of the Year. And our Arkansas club was playing so well. They had a chance to wrap up the first half title, which they did. Uh, so we were dragging our feet on promoting him because we wanted to keep that group together for a bit. We're also trying to keep Jake protected from me. <laughs> you know, and, and that was the, the, the effort here is that, you know, once you do the type of things that Jake and others are doing in Arkansas, and I could say the same, you know, in the last 10 days or so about Kyle, what we've seen roughly all year long, but particularly for the last month, five weeks from Evan White, you know, what we've seen really from the very get-go with Donnie Walton, who doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, you know, Donnie's a good baseball player. Uh, Justin Dunn, and I, there's the last I looked, Justin's done is is first, second, or third in almost every meaningful category among Texas League starting pitchers. You know, that group is doing great things. Once you're doing it at that level, the next call could be to Seattle. And you know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure of, especially in the situation that we're presently in, you know, Domingo has has had roughly an all starish type first half here in the big leagues. Malik Smith has hit his stride and is doing the things that we know Malik's can do. We have an all-star outfielder on the disabled list who we anticipate comes back in the not-too-distant future in Mitch Hanniger. What I don't want to do is I don't want to put Jake Fraley in a position to where I get the itchy trigger finger, which I'm apt to do, <laughs> and and he winds up in Seattle only to wind up being on the short end of playing time rather than playing consistently. So, you know, we, we moved Jake a little later than maybe we would have anticipated. We waited until the, the AA break was upon us. You know, they'll start their break tomorrow and and I, or today. And and I think the 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 idea of, of giving Jake the opportunity to roll with it and and play at the at, at the AAA level for I don't know how long. You know, if he keeps doing the things that he was doing in Arkansas, you're just not gonna be able to hold him down. He's had a remarkable season and really a remarkable two years and deserves all the accolades that were thrown at him. Absolutely. And, you know, for those who are listening, seize the opportunity to go watch Jake Fraley in Tacoma. I know I personally have to do that. I got to get up to Everett as well. But yeah, jump on that opportunity to go see him in the PCL because with the way the ball's flying this year, you might see some special things on any given day. All right, here it is. First Stump JD from yours truly. Going in a little bit of a different direction. We had one on TV that is a little bit closer to this. Not, you know, necessarily the absolutely zany Aaron Goldsmith question, a little bit different. More so testing your own memory than necessarily baseball trivia. Your career high in strikeouts is four. Accomplished it a number of different times. The first time it happened. In an outing. For in an, an outing. Out. In okay, a single okay. outing, sorry. Gotcha. In a single outing. I was going to say, damn, I was no. a little better than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Not rates, a lot. Looking, the K-rates yeah. are a lot different in the 90s than yes. they are these days. But still, the career high for strikeouts in a single outing was four. The first time it happened was August 5th, 1993, a day game versus the Tigers. 
Bottom six, it's 8-2, but team's in a little bit of trouble. They got two men on, two outs, and you take over for Tom Kramer, who started the game. Can you name, or how many batters can you name of the four that you struck out? Travis Fryman. That is one. Rob Deere. No Rob Deere. <sighs> Cecil Fielder. Cecil Fielder, you got looking. Um, Mickey Tettleton. Got him swinging us in the frame. That's three. It was a walk to load the bases, and you're missing the one in the top. There's a top of the sixth, walk to load the bases, and you got this individual looking to end the top of the sixth. Chris Gomez. Or was he the walk? He was the walk. Yeah. Do you remember if it was an intentional or? The only reason I remember that is because I think it was Chris Gomez's first game in the big leagues. Really? uh, (laughs) But but that was, but it was not intentional. No, it was not intentional. Uh, Could it have been Eric Davis? It was not. It was, you give up? Yes. Dan Gladden. Dan you got Gladden. looking to get out of a jam. Yeah. But yeah, not some good hitters in there. Cecil Fielder, you got strikeout looking. Not too bad. Yeah, there were a number of outings. At Big Cess was a strikeout guy. Frankly, that was, the, and, and I remember that day, you know, um, because I was not necessarily, I was a ground ball pitcher, not necessarily a strikeout pitcher. And that Tiger team was about as 2019 in, the, in his makeup as they come. <laughs> it was bombs and strikeouts. And, you know, they, they weren't, they, they were occasionally built to walk. But off the top of my head, those players we just named, Eric Davis, Mickey Tettleton. It, it, it was a, a really just a barrage of guys who had huge power and high strikeout totals. And, and it was like a thrill ride going out to face that lineup because you, you knew it could end either way. Well, you avoided the big shot, the one. I mean, it was an 8-2 game, but, you know, one guy hits a homer, runs into one, and all of a sudden you're going, oh, no, now we got to – this is going to be hairy. <laughs> but, yeah, got a strikeout to end the bases loaded jam. Lou Whitaker singled to lead off the seventh, but then struck out. Here's a question for you that's come up recently. Striking out the side, top seven, Lou Whitaker singles. You go strikeout looking, strikeout looking, strikeout. Did you strike out the side? Yeah. Heck yeah. Okay. Three strikeouts? That's you, you striking betcha. out the side. I think so yeah. too. And for the record, I think Lou Whitaker should be in the Hall of Fame. So no, no shame in no, giving up a, a single leadoff single to a Hall of Fame. Sometimes you just need the style points for the strikeout the side, the little bit where you, you fell off a little bit, caught your balance. Maybe you give up a solo home run and a, a three run game. You give up a walk and the, the Fernando Rodney, if you will. But he had some good strikeout the sides. Uh, all right, let's get on to a couple. My kingdom for a few more strikeout the sides here. <laughs> We, we've seen more 30-pitch innings than strike out the sides, but <laughs> yeah. I, I would love them. Yeah, the, the locks will get you. The locks will get you. Um, as always, send your questions to the wheelhouse at mariners.com, or you can ping me on Twitter at, at Colin O'Keefe, and we'll try to get you in the mix here. A question from Connor in Seattle, a non-baseball question. With the draft in the rear view and Seattle heating up, it is, of course, officially summer here with the solstice in the rear view. What do away-from-work summer plans look like for a GM? Is there anything that you want to do in the city or like doing in the city during the summer? Do your kids or family travel with you at all? You know, obviously, we got the trade deadline coming down. You're still building a baseball team. But I know I like getting out there and doing a bunch of different stuff in the summer. What do you like to do during the summer? 
unfortunately for me, the summer, you're listening to it. The, the summer <laughs> for me is baseball. And uh, I, I know I get one little break, and that's coming up here in July when we take the Major League All-Star break. My wife and I always take a little trip, and we, we go somewhere for three days. This year we're going to Napa, which is usually our go-to. And, and uh, from there I'll go to Modesto and watch our, watch our Modesto nuts for five days and get a chance to check in with, with Logan and with Kellenick and with Cal Raleigh. And the, a fun group of players there, Joey Gerber, uh, a host of relievers who throw a million miles an hour. That's mostly how I spend my summer. You know, my even when the kids were small, my kids are all older. You know, my youngest just should make his professional debut today. Oh, fun! Uh, but uh, he's he's playing in the Royal System now. My my younger daughter is 24. She lives and works in Hong Kong, and and my older daughter is 26. She's married and works here in Seattle. So we're, we're a few years removed from them traveling with us. But my wife will go on an occasional trip with me, and, and we'll just explore cities. And, and unfortunately, when we're around Seattle, I'm working. We don't get normal Saturdays, Sundays, weekends like the, the, the normal workforce. We work straight through. Uh, most of our work days are anywhere from you know 10 to 16 hours in length. And we, it, so you tend to be all about the baseball. So when, when I get even a, a moment, like last night, frankly, you know, we, we play a day game against the Orioles. It is, it, it's over. It's 4.30. Head home, just th- salivating at the idea of throwing on a T-shirt and just going out and barbecuing. Yeah, I was going to say, you got to put the grill and the pizza oven to work, right? That's right. I'll wear them out. And, and you know, especially now when the weather is nice and, and you can get out and just enjoy the, the clean air. It's, it's an awesome place to be, but we don't get a chance to explore it in the summertime. That's maybe one of the downsides of the gig. I know. One of the most beautiful cities in the world during the summer and, you know, working in baseball, you got to savor those day games. You got to savor the, the, the 220s when you can get them. Maybe enjoy a drink outside at 10 o'clock, something of that ilk. Uh, one more question for you. Scott in Seattle is wondering, as a Mariners fan from Australia, salute to another Australian listener. He says, I love the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to keep us in the loop. I am an international fan. My questions relate to that. Firstly, can you explain how international si- the international signing system works? For example, signing a team prospect out of South America. Also, do the Mariners ever consider sending prospects to the Australian Baseball League? We've, of course, talked about Jake Fraley, but, you know, let's just tackle the first one. We've got the July 2 deadline coming up. How does, you know, that whole process work? I know there's a bit of a pool involved with what you're able to spend. In basic terms, how does that work? You know, I'd say it's seven years ago now. This is the seventh year of working in the system that we presently work in where the international market is governed by a slotting system that's not too dissimilar from the draft, but it's not per slot. Each team is given a pool of money to work with. Similar to the draft, it, it's it's tiered as such that the teams who finished with the worst records the year before get the most money to get in their pool. Uh, that being said, for instance, this year the Orioles have the the benefit of picking first in the the Rule Four draft. They also have the benefit of the largest pool to spend internationally. So, you know, the idea is to give the teams at the bottom a chance to rebound and, and I guess, carom back to the top or boomerang back to the top quicker than they would otherwise. You know, we have always been somewhere in the 
15 to 20 range. You know, we've we've been a slightly better than average team for the last three or four years. You know, in some years we've been considerably better than the average, but we're constantly stuck in that flux. So we wind up on the three tiers of international scouting slots. You know, the, the, on the front end, they might get somewhere close to $8 million to spend internationally. We have historically been just a shade below $5 million in what we can spend. So there, there's a pretty sizable gap between being a mid-level group like we have been, where we're getting, let's say, four seven five zero in in spending space. But that spending space is is only on players who are going to achieve bonuses of $300,000 or more. Uh, players who who are going to get bonuses of two hundred ninety nine thousand dollars or less, you can sign as many of them as you want to. The downside is no one really signs for that anymore. Yeah. So it's uh, the the general rule is you you have to spend within your pools. You know the it's a funky market now because in order to be prepared, you know next month, very, actually in a few weeks, we will announce our July two class. You know, we're already working on our July two class 2022, yeah. you know, so it's a, we're it's in some ways and we talk about it over the last six or seven years. You know, w- the way the system works, you have to be prepared once you've made your commitments to the July two 2019 group. You have to be prepared two and three years out for the players that make the most sense for you, what you're likely to have to to promise them along the way to 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 gather them in I said so to speak and then cross your fingers and hope that by the time you get to 2022 that prospect is still doing the things that they're doing and that they are willing to take the the type of bonus that you can offer at that time so you know we're we're going through it right now it's very exciting we're we're going to bring players on board from really all over last year's class included players from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela. Uh, I, we had players from Colombia, Panama, and we'll continue to do that. We had one player, two players from Australia in last year's group, uh, and we had one player from Southeast Asia. So it's, you know, when, when you get a chance to cash in and watch these 16, 17-year-olds grow into, you know, real prospects, it's so much fun. And you know, we saw Blake Townsend, who we signed out of Australia about a year ago, and make his his professional debut. He's he's the age of your normal high school graduate now because we sent him back to graduate high school before we had him come over here, and and uh, he, he made his debut down in the Arizona Summer League. And we'll see that, you know, by and large in the DSL, but we'll see that over the course of these next you know, six to 12 months, because many of the kids that we sign on July 2nd, 2019, won't actually play in a game until May of 2020. Mm-hmm. Noel V. Marte being a key example, Correct. one of the top signees last year. But that doesn't mean, you know, of course, we get right to work developing him. Heads to, I don't know how soon after he got to Peoria, but I know he was at the high performance camp last fall. And then now you see him taking off in the Dominican Summer League. Though it is, it's funny because, you know, you're rewarding the Orioles for you know, having a tough go, obviously, but it's the difference between the money that they'll spend in their July 2 class and the players that they get there on a little different timetable than, say, Adley Rushman taking for that is correct. on the draft. That is correct. So it'll yeah. take a little Although bit of time. Although I guess if you look at Juan Soto, who was one of those That's guys, true. you know, at 19 years old, showing up in the big leagues, and not just showing up in the big leagues at 19, but doing things at, at 19 that only superstars do. Uh and, and I mean superstars when they're 27 or do, and it's he was crazy. doing it in 19. I've, I've talked about this before, and we, of course, love Julio Rodriguez to death, 
But what Juan Soto does is like if Julio Rodriguez this year was like an all-star level talent in the majors. So it's it's absolutely unbelievable. Well, uh, the Mariners, of course, just hit the road. We've got three in Milwaukee, three in Houston. Then they'll come back home. Uh, we've got a pretty good homestand coming up. Of course, the Mariners will kick off a three-game set against the St. Louis Cardinals, a rare visit from the Cardinals. you got guys like Marcelo Zuna coming to town. I think he's fun to watch. Uh, and then, of course, we have July 3rd, which is Red, White, and True, the Blue Fireworks Night. So come on out a night early, enjoy some fireworks, have a beer, and then enjoy your day off the next day. Though, again, Thursday, we're back in action in a day game, Patriotic Mariners Tank Top Day. And then finally, Friday through Sunday against the A's is our Mariners Value Weekend presented by BECU. Grab a $15 ticket to the bleachers or the main level or the view level. I love sitting in the view level. The view of the view level looking across at the skyline. That's one of my favorites. I think that's pretty cool. So come on out and enjoy the game. Jerry, thanks as always for your time. Can't wait till the next one.